Well, Sanctus Church, good morning, whether you're here at Ajax or Bowmanville or Port Perry or Pickering or somewhere online, well, online we're so glad that you're joining us uh, here today. I don't know if you were here last week, but if you are, you're probably still recovering from Jonah chapter one like I am, and welcome to week two and chapter two. Let me do a summary this way. Last week, we read the story or the beginning story of Jonah. Jonah runs from the presence of God in Jerusalem. He wants nothing to do with God's plan of mercy to save his ethnic enemies. He's so angry, rightly so, at the Assyrians and the Ninevites. He was profoundly moved by their hatred and how they were basically a terrorist state. And so he is upset at God, that God would seemingly stoop so low that he'd be merciful, that he would appear to be unjust, that he would care for those demon-worshipping psychopaths that killed and wiped out culture after culture and that was oppressing his culture in this moment. He would have no part of God's plan. So he ran, and we found out that he sold everything and got his new Speedo and headed right towards the beautiful southern beaches of Spain. And then the storm came, then the pleading, and... Then he's discovered the end has come. He's surrendered himself to the inevitable. God is perfect. God is judge. God never makes mistakes. Jonah has disobeyed. Jonah has become hard-hearted. Jonah has let racism and pain and anger and sin and his view of justice be greater than the grace of God for his enemies. So now in the middle of this storm that has brought terror to the most experienced of sailors, he's now thrown into the deep, into the out-of-control ocean. And as he is tossed, he prepares to die. But in that split, split second, God who is holy reminds Jonah and reminds all of us today that he's also love. God intervenes for his prodigal son and his prodigal prophet and saves his life. Because he loves Jonah, but not only because he loves Jonah, because he also profoundly loves Jonah's enemies, and the mission of Jonah must not be lost. This is where we ended last week in chapter 1, verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Then we turn the page from inside the fish. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Did you catch it? For the first time so far in the book of Jonah, Jonah says the Lord is his God, personal, real, honest. This turning of Jonah back to God has begun, but it only happens when death is knocking on his door. Of course, Jonah writes this book later, and he summarizes his experience in his prayer later, but these next two sentences sort of summarize his full experience. He said, in distress... I called to the Lord and he answered me from the deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help and you listened to my cry. Even after all my sinning, after all my running, after all my rebellion, God, you still answered me. Think about it. Have you ever really messed up in your life badly or you've hurt someone or offended someone or you've gone too far and you go and you call the person on the phone or you text them or you knock on their door and they won't come to the door and they won't return your call and you're always looking for the three little dots for the text to come back and it never appears. You wait and you wait and they will not reconcile with you even though you're admitting you're wrong. Well, unlike human beings, right when Jonah called out to God, God picked up right away. Right when God called back Jonah to himself, this profound thing takes place. And we need to be reminded all the time, but specifically in this moment, that God is mercy, God is grace, and God is love. By the way, did you catch where Jonah ended up calling to God from? 
He says, oh, I was in the realm of the dead. The phrase is Sheol, the abode of the dead, the place where the dead wait for judgment, in the jaws of death, in the place of no escape. As one person said, in the entrails of death, in the bottom, at the bottom, through the bottom, and all my lostless, there I cried out to God, and God, you listened to me. Oh, but your listening was not listening than laughing at me. Your listening was not listening and ignoring me. Your listening was not listening and then listing all the things I had done wrong, then calling me. God who's almighty, God who's in charge of land and sea, when I cried out to you, you had mercy on me and you helped me. And it's here that Jonah in classic Jewish Hebraic thinking cries out, he writes, he utters a psalm of repentance, thanksgiving, and praise. And how he does it actually matters so much. Jonah, if you read chapter two carefully, literally is recounting each moment of terror as he's sinking down and dying. This is actually him writing about how he drowned. But don't misread this, especially if you've grown up in church. Most of us, when we read the story of Jonah, thinks that the large fish that God commissions to swallow him swallows him on the surface. No, no, no. The fish doesn't show up at the surface. The fish shows up at the bottom at the last second right when he's about to die. You, God, verse 3, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. The currents are swirling about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. First of all, Jonah admits that God is behind all of this. Yes, of course, the sailors are the literal ones who threw him overboard, but actually this is God's hand. And, And don't get too angry at God. God had told Jonah to do something. Jonah had broken God's law. God, who is a perfect judge, who makes no mistakes, has declared him guilty. God, you flung me into death's door. Now watch this. Jonah, at this moment in the story, is literally on the surface of the ocean. He's being tossed back and forth, waves smashing over him. His strength is giving way. The currents are starting to pull him down. And then he utters what he thinks will be his last words. And his last words are full of contradiction. I've been banished from your sight, yet... I will look again towards your holy temple. Now, you feel regret here and pain here. So honest, I've been banished. Now, that phrase matters because it's the same phrase used for Adam and Eve when they were banished from the Garden of Eden. No longer life but death, no longer close but far. I've given up what was amazing for nothing. And yet, and yet, there's a reason why Jonah uses the same intention as the Garden of Eden. See, Adam and Eve were banished, were driven out of Eden so God could save them. We miss this so much of the time. God said you must leave because he knew if Adam and Eve, after they sinned, walked over to the other tree, the tree of life, and ate the tree of life, they would be eternally unable to be redeemed. So God in his mercy drives Adam and Eve out of Eden. He banishes them so in judgment he can show mercy and save them again. And Jonah knows this. So this is why he cries out, I am banished. And yet in the same breath says, but I'm going to be saved. I'm going to look at the temple again. I'm going to be able, and notice the language, in this life to go back to the guaranteed place of encounter and meet with the God I've been running from. This is going to happen. And right when he says it, then he sinks and begins to drown. The water passes from his neck over his head. He begins to go down, helpless, enmeshed in seaweed, a bed being prepared for him in a watery grave. 
He says in verse 5, the engulfing waters threaten me, the deep surround me, the seaweed wrapped around my head. Now, there's so much more going on here than we read in English on the surface. Do you see that phrase, the deep? That phrase is the exact same phrase that we sort of discovered just before Christmas in a really weird verse most of us don't understand. It's the second verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-2. Do you remember this? Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the what? Everyone? The deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the what? The waters. Now, let me just preach this again, because I know all of you weren't there. In the beginning, before creation and then at creation, when the uncreated was becoming created, there is this foreboding darkness, a disorder, something that's out of place. It's dangerous, it's wrong, it's evil, and rebellious. This is called the darkness, the abyss, the deep, or water. Now, in Hebrew, this reads like this. There was a dangerous, hostile, raging, out-of-control storm described as the deep. And for years, like I shared just before Christmas, I didn't understand. This made no sense to me at all. How can there be water before God has created water? And even more confusing is when you go to the end of the Bible, when God makes all things right again, he declares something in Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any what? Sea. And I was like, what? The sea is gone. I like the sea, I told God. I want to sit by the ocean in the new heavens and the new earth. And I want to learn to surf with my amazing new resurrection body. And many of us in this church love water and ocean. It's actually where we sort of feel close to God. So we're like, well, why, why are you so against the ocean? What's going on here? And then as you read your Old Testament, things get weirder and weirder because there are these demonic creatures, God-like creatures that are always connected to our raging out-of-control sea and they almost seem to threaten God's control and even God's ability in creation. And their names are Yam and Leviathan and Rahab and Behemoth. And I told you in the church I grew up, I was told that these were dinosaurs to get beyond the evolution debate. No, because if you read the Bible carefully, every one of them has supernatural ability and power, and they're always connected to water. Leviathan, as an example, in Hebrew and Canaanite culture, is a twisting sea serpent with seven heads, which lived in raging, out-of-control seas, and God overcomes him in Psalm 74. Rahab is this dragon connected with the sea and God overcomes him in Isaiah 51. And I was like, what does this mean? I don't understand this. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks because in the New Testament, Yam and Leviathan and and all these creatures have the same description and are even used for someone we now call who? Satan. So in, ready? In Genesis 1-2, the war is already on. There's supernatural darkness. And that's why it says in Revelation 21, there will be no sea in the new heavens and the new earth. The chaos and the disorder and evil has been banished. Anyone want to say amen, by the way, to that? But by the way, there's still going to be water. Someone came after first service in Ajax like, but I still like the ocean. Don't worry, it's going to be there. But not this one. And so this is what we need to understand when we're reading Jonah because Jonah is saying so much more than we get. He says, I'm not only physically dying, I'm literally sinking into the chaos and the demonic power mentioned in Genesis 1-2. I'm literally in the jaws of evil. I'm now in the abyss of chaos. I'm going to the land of the dead. There is no escape. And then he says, let me continue to tell you about my terrifying journey. To the roots of the mountain I sank down, and the earth barred me in forever. But you, 
Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. There at the bottom, there at death's door, there in the middle of spiritual chaos, there under God's just judgment, there in the pit of all pits, God acts, God sends the fish at the end, not at the beginning, and God rescues. God comes into the grave and gets me out. And matters so much when we read this. Because he goes down, down, down into the grave. Physical, spiritual, hell, Satan, death, sin, just wrath. Down he goes. And then God, who is holy but also love, acts. And in that moment of grave-like existence, he brings him back to life. Up, up, up. He says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayers rose to you, to your holy temple. Isn't it wild that Jonah was running literally, not just from the omnipresence of God, but from the temple himself. And he said, when I cried out to you at the bottom of the bottom in the belly of the fish, where did my prayers end up going? Oh, to the temple, what I was running from. And you still had mercy on me. You didn't hang up the phone. You still responded to my text and still said, I love you. Amazing. And then he says this profound word that begins to show truth and brokenness. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. He's like, God is real, everyone. And idols and trusting yourself brings lies and deceit and futility and it's worthless. I've known this my whole life. When when you love something more than God, you forfeit grace. You give up love. Don't be like me. Don't be like Adam and Eve. Don't walk away from the real love of God. And by the way, the word love here in Hebrew is hesed. It doesn't just mean compassion and kindness. It's the marriage language of God. So when you hear the word hesed, this is what it means. God, who is a faithful husband, who will never break his vows, who will always be there to help. When you forfeit hesed through idolatry, you move away from someone who is always faithful to you. Think about it. Has God never, has God ever broken his vows to you? Has God ever really not been faithful to you? Has God ever broken his word? Of course not. And Jonah's saying, if you trust in anything or anyone, if you trust in science or education or philosophy or or your gender or your ethnicity or your background, or if you trust in a political movement or if you trust in another God or another religion, whoever or whatever you put your trust in who is not the God of the universe, you will forfeit Hesed. Don't do it. His faithfulness is better. His love is better. It's never worth giving it up. Now, Jonah, in this moment, is contrasting himself with all the others still in the dark, still clinging to things that don't bring life. And we would say, amen, and this is so good. But actually, this reveals a real problem in Jonah. This is like salt and spring water being together. You can't tell it's true until you drink it. Because what he's saying is correct, but his motives, even, ready, his motives, even at death's door, are broken. See, although what Jonah's saying is right, we begin to see a crack in a problem. Jonah is changed, sort of. Again, he's still participating in the sin of othering. He's still sitting there at the point of death, even though God's having mercy on him and he's in the belly of a fish and he knows he's going to meet God again. He's still saying, but you know, those people who worship those idols, well, you know, it's what Tim Keller wrote when he said, there's still a sense of superiority and self-righteousness that will cause Jonah later to explode in anger in chapter 4 when God has mercy on those that Jonah views as inferior. 
He sees the literal idols of the pagans and does not see the more subtle idols in his own life that keep him from fully grasping that them and him only live equally by God's grace. So God saves him, and even in the saving, Jonah still has not repented of his racism, his hatred, and his unforgiveness. He says, still thinking he's innocent fully in verse 9, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, I'm going to sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I'm going to make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Now, I'd never caught this in the story of Jonah, but all of this is happening. He's saying this is all going to happen while he's still not on dry land, but actually in the belly of the fish. It's like what the song many of you sing, it's praise before my breakthrough is true. He says, the presence I was running from, I cannot now wait to get close again, so close. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to go to Israel and I'm going to actually right into the temple and I'm actually going to match my words with actions. I'm going to sacrifice to you. Now, this is a formal deal. Psalms of thanksgiving, much of the time, were said in the temple and they were accompanied by a sacrifice. When someone was rescued from illness or death, they would provide an animal sacrifice and the best parts of the animal, which was considered fat, was burned to God and the rest of the animal would be eaten and shared. And much of the time when a psalm of thanksgiving was said in the temple, the meal through the animal would be the place where the person stands up and tells their testimony, their story about how God rescues them. Now, did you catch the repetition? Because I sure didn't. Both chapter 1 and chapter 2 have the exact same ending. The pagan sailors who had no clue who God was and Jonah share the same crisis, the storm. Both cry out to the true living God, Yahweh. They both in the end acknowledge God as God. They all acknowledge he's in control. They acknowledge he's sovereign. They both get physically rescued. They both connect with God. They both make vows to God. They both make sacrifices to God. But here's the irony. Here's the insight. Here's the rebuke to us who know God. Jonah had God's word his whole life. The pagan sailors didn't. Jonah was Jewish. He was part of God's people, the Abrahamic community. And not only was that true, he's not only in covenant with God because he's Jewish. Actually, Jonah personally had encountered the uncreated one. Jonah was personally commissioned by God. Jonah, who personally was made a prophet by God, arrives to the spiritual place where the non-Jewish pagan sailors already had arrived before he did. He's still looking down on them and they've already got closer to the God that he supposedly knows like a bestie. Be real careful when you think God isn't working somewhere else. Well, the Lord ends the story like this. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Isn't it interesting? God commands, he commissions and calls the fish. The fish doesn't have a debate with God like Jonah, and it's done. Welcome home. And God responds to Jonah's prayer, again, the most hilarious of ways. He spews Jonah up, mission accomplished. Jonah's saved because God loves him. And Jonah is also saved, so others he hates still will be saved. Now, let's just sit for a moment and ask a few things. Not only, hmm, what have I learned that I didn't know before historically? The greater question is, what is the Holy Spirit saying to us as Sanctus Church to you as an individual, teaching us and leading us into, well, first, Jesus, who, of course, is God in flesh, the God of Jonah, 
He thought this was so significant, Jonah chapter 2, that he uses Jonah 2 multiple times, not only to address his enemies, but actually to show the world who he truly is. It says in Matthew 12, 38, then some of the Pharisees, the pastors of the day, and the teachers of the law came to Jesus' teacher. We want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wickest, you're a wicked and adulterous generation asking for a sign. But none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation, and they're going to condemn it. For they repented at Jonah's preaching, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Whoa. First of all, Jesus stands up and says, I'm more important than Jonah. Excuse me? (laughs) And not only am I more important than Jonah, what I'm doing is more powerful than what Jonah ever did. What? Oh, and oh, oh, just so you understand, my preaching is more important and stronger than Jonah's preaching. And by the way, if those pagan, terrorist-like state Assyrians repented at his preaching, but you don't repent at my preaching, you think they were in trouble? You're in way more trouble. Why? Because I'm actually the God of Jonah. See, and this is actually even more than that. He uses Jonah as a foreshadow. He says, do you know why in the sovereignty of God, Jonah took place? One of the greatest reasons is this, because it is the picture, it is the foreshadow of my life and my death and resurrection. And when I rise from the dead, Ninevites and Jews and everyone else can come home because what I'm about to do is way more significant. One person said, Jonah is thrown to death because of sin, Jesus became sin for us. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights. Jonah was thrown up by the fish. Jesus is resurrected and overcomes. Jonah will lead a cruel nation of idol worshipers to the God of heaven and earth. Jesus will open the door for all people and all nations to move from separation to relationship with the God of the Hebrews through him, Jesus the Son. Jesus says, I'm the greater Jonah. No, it's really important that we stop at this moment, though, and become profoundly thankful. Because what Jonah 2 reminds us is that God is the author of our faith and we are not. Thank God. God can use those who run from him. And this is so important. Let me ask you this question Have you run from God? Do you run from God? Have you avoided church for years or closeness to Jesus? Do you avoid or dislike or hate part or all of God's word, but you still know him? Are you actually listening to me online because you refuse to come to church because of sin or rebellion or pain or how someone treated you at church? Well, God uses the broken to confuse the world. And don't fear. His Hesed love has not run out. He's not closed the door. He's going to still answer your text. And oh, by the way, if you come back, he'll use you again. He can transform one said a Christian plagued with a lack of courage, a Christian in rebellion, a Christian that hates secretly in their heart. God can use one that loves a comfortable church and a church that stays the same, even though God is telling us to go to another place. God will always show up if you cry out like he did with Jonah. One of the greatest stories in the last 250 years about God restoring a running Christian, a Jonah, comes from the Victorian era in London, England. This is a true historical account. In the 18th century in London, it was a bright Sunday morning, but Robert Robinson's mood was not sunny at all. 
All along the street, people were hurrying to church. In the midst of the crowd, Robinson was a lonely man. The sound of church bells all around him reminded him of years past when he was a young adult and his faith in God was strong and the church was integral in his life. It had been years since he'd set foot in a church. By the way, right now, here at another site or online, you can't believe I'm even saying this because you're actually setting foot in a church and you haven't done it for years. Years of wandering, disillusionment, key phrase, and a gradual defection from the God he once loved. That love for God, once fiery and passionate, slowly burned out within him, leaving him dark and cold. Well, Robinson heard the clip-clop of a horse-drawn cab behind him. He turned to lift his hand to hail the driver. But he saw that the cab, the Uber of his day, was occupied by a young woman dressed, I love this, in the finery for the Lord's day, dressing up for Jesus. So he waved the Uber by, and the woman in the Uber said, no, stop. Sir, I'd be happy to share my cab with you. Are you going to church, she asked. He was about to decline and then weirdly said, yes. Yes, I I am going to church. So he stepped into the carriage and sat down beside this young woman. He did not know her. As the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the woman exchanged introductions, as was the custom, and there was a flash of recognition in her eyes when he stated his name. She said, "That's, that's a shocking coincidence. She reached into her purse and she pulled out a small book of inspirational poems and opened it to a ribbon bookmark and handed the book to him. She says, I was literally just reading this morning this verse by this famed poet called Robert Robinson. Is that you? He took the book nodding. Yes, he said, I am. I wrote these words years ago. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. Imagine I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines going to church. Robinson recalls that he could barely hear her at that moment. He was absorbed in the words that he once wrote. They they were words, by the way, that one day would be set to music and become one of the greatest hymns of Western Christianity, uh, sung by hundreds of millions and generations of Christians. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Calls of, of loudest praise. His eyes slipped to the bottom of the page. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. He could barely read the last few lines he recalls. As tears brimmed in his eyes, he said, I I wrote these words. I've lived these words. Prone to wander. Suddenly, the woman clued into what was taking place. And she looked at the man she had so much respect for and realized he had fallen. And she gently said, but you also wrote, here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. You can offer your heart right now to God again, Mr. Robinson. It is never too late. Well, it wasn't too late. And this was no coincidence, of course. This is Divine Conspiracy 101. And in that moment, he did go to church. He turned his heart back to God and he walked with God the rest of his life. Which is beautiful. But here's the question. (laughs) Have you run from God? Are you avoiding Jesus? 
Are you avoiding his people, his church? Do you come week in and week out, but you're running inside? Listen, just come home. Today, be like Jonah. Even Jonah in his mixed up, not everything's worked out thinking, God still heard his prayer. And God's hesed was stronger than Jonah's compromise. All you must do is say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, rescue me, and use me once again. And you will be met. It is not a mistake that I am speaking at this moment to some of you. You're like, why are you looking at me? I can't see you. There's lights and you're actually at Pickering, so how do I even know? God always is setting up scenarios to meet his wandering, running children. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. His love is better than anything the world can offer. Come home. Come home to him. Now, many of us are like, well, nope, that's not me. I'm I'm good. I'm not Jonah. I'm in. I'm not running from his presence. I, I love the Bible. I go to connect group. I'm great. Okay? We all need to remember as human beings that the Bible is very relevant. Jeremiah, I think, says that the heart is deceitful above all things. We are all blind much of the time to who we really are. If you doubt it, just ask your best friend or your spouse. You'll learn very quickly how blind you are. But God sees us in perfection. He sees us honestly. And so we should not be quickly moving to, I'm fine, I'm not Jonah. Last week when we gathered together, we began a very difficult conversation as a church about othering and how Jonah at his heart believed that other people did not deserve the mercy of God and the love of God like he did. And we started walking through all the different categories of those others that don't deserve God's love. And I asked you last week, I don't know if you did it, I did it, I asked you to do it, to sit with the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit to tell you specifically who you do not love, who you're suspicious of, who you would be hesitant to give the gospel to, to forgive and to love. If, by the way, you didn't do it, you still should. And that was an external conversation, those people. But now there's a different conversation we need to have with the Holy Spirit this week. We need to go before the Holy Spirit and ask him this, am I becoming Jonah and I don't even know it? I love when one person said, there are a group of patterns that if you honestly see them, you are becoming the dark side of Jonah. The first one is lack of prayer. You'll notice in Jonah's story, he, he ran from the presence of God and stopped basically praying. He was silent. If your prayer life is collapsing or it's become cold, you're in danger of becoming Jonah very quickly. If there's an absence of joy and praise, actually, I'm just going to stop. In Jesus' name, the evil one cannot stop what I'm about to say. If there's an absence of joy and praise in your life, I didn't say happiness, but if worship is actually not taking place, if you are not coming to guaranteed places of encounter to worship, you're in danger of becoming Jonah. If there's a lack of appreciation of life and death looks good, and there's a lot of complication around that very quickly, but you need to have a conversation. One of the biggest signs that you're becoming Jonah 
is if you actually have lost sensitivity to sin in your own life. If you find yourself saying, I know it's bad, but, well, I'm just going to do that thing because it's not that. If you start heading down a path where you begin to justify or you no longer feel convicted of what the Bible is clear upon, you already are Jonah. Another sign that you're becoming Jonah, a Jonah-like individual in the negative sense is that actually you miss the consequences of your sin on other people. And this is really important that you go, I'm going to do this and I don't care what happens. One of the biggest ones is you don't have compassion or love for other people. Like I said last week, your political view, your pain, your history, your is, is stronger than the mercy of God for the world. And the greatest sign you've become Jonah in the negative way is that you know the commands of God and you just say, I don't care, I'm not obeying. Or in a unique way, if the Lord has asked you to do something and you've said no. Now, this is not meant, by the way, as condemnation or wagging a finger. This is just an honest conversation because remember, I'll speak to our community directly, right? Our church, though many others listen. Why did God ask us to change our name? That we would reflect our Lord. Sanctus Church, set apart and holy. God is inviting us more and more into holiness, into love. So it is my request this week, personally, as you walk with Jesus, as you connect small in a connect group or in other environments, that you ask the Holy Spirit this question. Am I becoming like Jonah and I don't even see it? Is my prayer life beginning to disappear? Is praise disappearing? Do I actually look for more death than life? Am I no longer sensitive to the Holy Spirit convicting me of sin or the consequences of my sin on others? Do I love my view more than God's love for my enemy or am I just purely disobeying? So let's just take a moment across all of our sites and all of you watching online. Could we just pray about this? So God of Jonah found through the face of Jesus, through the life of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. First of all, we want to thank you that you are good and your love endures forever. And we want to thank you that your Hesed love, your faithful marriage love is stronger than our disobedience and our wandering. And thank you, Jesus, that you are the perfect Jonah and there's no compromise in you. So first of all, as a church, we just want to say thank you so much that you keep giving us mercy, that your mercies are new every morning, that you keep forgiving us, that you love us. You're never going to leave us or forsake us. Just thank you. Can you say thank you just to God right now? Just thank you. Thank you. Some of us, Lord, are listening at this moment and we are shocked and terrified because we are literally Robert Robinson. We are Jonah and we can't believe this is being preached on. So if that's you, just literally on, on your knees or in your heart say, I'm coming home. I'm done running. I want to go back to the God I once loved. And Lord, we pray for those people coming back. You'd restore them. You'd heal them. You'd heal them and restore their history. Do new things. Use them again. No matter what the evil one says, no matter what their family or friends say, no matter what even church people say, use them again in Jesus' name. And and then for the rest of us, Holy Spirit, um, we will not fight you. 
Come Holy Spirit. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit and speak to us and tell any one of us in any part of our life if we are becoming Jonah or we've already become Jonah in a negative way and help us to repent and help us to be free so we can experience the love of God together. Lord, over the next seven days, we we give you the next week to speak. Not just in this moment, this whole week. Speak, Holy Spirit. Prayer, sin, love, obedience, freedom. Just come, Holy Spirit. Do the unusual in our very busy, fragmented lives. Yeah, we pray this uh, in Jesus' name, who is mercy. And we all said together, we're going to respond with communion because Jesus, just before he was executed and murdered, really, um, got with his closest friends and said at a Passover meal, took a piece of Passover bread and said, my body's going to be broken for you. And then he took one of the goblets of wine and said, my blood's going to be spilled. This is a new covenant, a new agreement. This is the fulfillment, actually, of Hesed and everything in the Old Testament in the best of ways. So if you're a Christian, as you come forward, it's past today. We're going to be past, I mean, come forward community today. As you come forward, number one, you thank Jesus that Jesus is the author of your faith and he's faithful more than you're faithful. Second thing, as you come forward, the Bible says this is we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. So do that. Remember his death for you and his resurrection. Third, as we always say, when you come forward and take communion, you repent of sin. So if anything I've preached on, if you came under the conviction of sin while I preached, you come and repent and then take this. Also, we say this all the time at Sanctus Church. We take communion with hundreds of millions of Christians this week, but remember there's one day we'll never do this again because in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll never need to do this because we're actually going to see Jesus face to face and eat with him. Isn't that amazing? Cannot wait for that. Just, yeah, so amazing. And also, as we teach here all the time, this is a guaranteed place of encounter. Jesus is not in these elements, but Jesus is here. And though my friends are going to serve you today, the one who's really serving you is Jesus himself. So when you come to take communion today, you come full of expectation, holy fear, and love, because he's here. He's really here. This isn't just memorial. He's present. Communion. If you're a Christian, you're welcome. If you're struggling, you're welcome. If you're doing great in your faith, you're welcome. If you're having a terrible week, you're welcome. If you're not a Christian yet, please don't take communion because you've not embraced the one it represents. It's a great place to meet him. But most importantly, Paul says, if you're a Christian and you're actually running like Jonah did and not obeying God in a certain way or a specific way, you don't take this until you repent. So would you stand uh, with me now and let me just pray over this moment. Thank you, Lord, that where two or three Christians gather, Jesus is present. Thank you that you inhabit the praises of your people. Thank you that where spiritual gifts are, the spirit of God is being used and present. And thank you that you are here now in communion. Come meet with your people. Bring people home. Restore us. Give us hope. Remind us of your love. Yeah, have your way, we ask in Jesus' name.